episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to political analysis to Mad Magazine essays to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode features Andrew Marinus, the excellent biographer who spoke with me on the pub date of his new book, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. And Andrew talks all sorts of interesting. On writing a book where everyone involved is dead, on chronicling a gold metal game that was played in mud and rain and ended with a score of 19 to 8, I'm being raised by a father who's a Pulitzer winner. Andrew's a tremendous talent, and he's right now on Two Writers, Slinging Yang. All right, Andrew, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Today is pub day, and for people who don't write books or haven't had the experience, to me, pub day is always a combination of best day, worst day. Like, it's super exciting, super nerve-wracking. Today is pub day. What does that mean for you? Yeah, I feel a huge jumble of emotions today. Right now, I'm literally sitting in a conference room at my kid's school. Uh, I told them <laughs> that I would have uh, lunch with them today. <laughs> you know, I'm about mm-hmm. to be traveling a lot for this book. And so I'm trying to be smart about spending as much time as I can with, with my kids through this whole process there in third grade and kindergarten. That was a lesson I learned the first time around with my last book that I did not do a good job of. I got kind of caught up in this the fun aspect of being an author when your book's out there and people want to see you and hear you and you get to travel. And I kind of neglected other parts of my life. And I'm, so I'm trying to be much more mature about that this time. So uh, I was on a sports radio show here in Nashville this morning. And then uh, with Greg Pogue on his show, I'll have lunch with the kids and then I'll start getting ready for the uh, launch event at Parnassus, great independent bookstore here in Nashville tonight. Yeah. So I'm wondering, will anyone show up? <laughs> uh, what will people think of this book? Will anyone buy it? All those types of doubts, but excitement too. I, this is something that has only existed in my head and on my computer and now it belongs to the world. So that's a really fun feeling too. You're doing a book event and I've talked about book events every now and then on this podcast because um, they're my least favorite thing in the history of mankind. Take herpes, take flat tires, take, <laughs> you know, whatever. And book signings just freak the hell out of me. So how you have a book signing tonight in your hometown, which is wise and everyone does it. Do you make sure people are going like, how do you make sure it's not a bad event? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I do enough for that. I mean, I've had my mother-in-law send things out to people, uh, force my wife to invite her book clubs, <laughs> things, things like that. Um, emailed people that I probably haven't talked to in five years, you know, and made sure they were aware of this event. My dad, who's also an author and has been on your podcast, yep. refers to the Mendoza line. He and his, his writer buddies, you remember the old Mendoza of line in the, uh, in the paper, if you're hitting above or below 200, I think they consider 10 people at your book signing to be the Mendoza line. So um, hopefully I'll, I'll be above that tonight. You never know. I mean, there was a time when I was speaking about my last book at a book festival in Kentucky, which... My book was about basketball and where better to be than Kentucky talking about a basketball book. And it was a a book uh, festival. And so the panel before mine was four authors who had written books about Kentucky Wildcat basketball. And I thought, well, they're going to have a huge crowd. They had four people. So I knew that there would be less than four people (laughs) at my talk. 
and it turned out there were three. So, um, yeah, like you said, you never know. You sweat it out. Will you believe I've never done a book signing with less than 10,000 people showing up? <laughs> Good job, man. I mean, I know you put like the postcards and windshields at the Angels games and things, right? So yeah, <laughs> it all worked. <laughs> yeah, it all. It, the funny, my favorite is um, John Wertheim once did a book event at a bookstore in Indiana, and he got to the store, and the store didn't exist anymore. <laughs> well, who did he plan it with? <laughs> his publicist. His publicist was like, I have this bookstore. It's really great. And he gets there, and the store isn't there, and he calls up, and the publicist says one, one of my favorite lines of all time. He said, that's weird because the store has always been good to us. <laughs> they didn't even bother to let him know they closed. My, my father had a, a book signing in Chicago the fall. The Cubs went to the World Series for the first time in 100 years. And he said he only had White Sox fans there that night. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> you are in a unique club. You, Sally Jenkins, Jeremy Shap. You're the son of one of the great journalists of the last, whatever, 50 years. Uh, just an outset Pulitzer winner and a great writer and a great reporter. And he has all these books. Does it come with any um, expectations? Do you have to worry about mm -hmm. being compared to someone else? Or is it just great and dandy and there's no pressure and it doesn't matter? No, I would say it definitely comes with some, or at least internal pressure that I put on myself. One good thing is that my father never wrote a book until after I had graduated from college. So I didn't grow up with an author uh, in my house, which I think was good for me. But having said that, I would say that um, I did resist writing a book for a long time or even staying in journalism because I didn't really just want to follow in my father's footsteps. You know, I wanted to do something that was a little bit different. The reason I wrote my first book on Perry Wallace uh, wasn't to become an author. It was really because I wanted to tell that specific story. And I had written about Perry, who was the first African-American basketball player in the SEC um, for a college paper. And it stayed on my mind for 17 years. And I began to think it would be a crime if this amazing person lived and died and no one really knew his story. And uh, Toni Morrison had a quote that if there's a book you want to read and uh, it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And that's the way I felt about Perry. Like, uh, you know, it's up to me at this point and screw it. If I'm worried about being compared to my dad, I'm going to, I'm going to try this anyway. When the book came out and in writing this book and, and waiting for reviews and that sort of thing. Yeah. I always sort of feel like I have a certain um, pressure to live up to expectations so that someone can't say, well, this guy is nothing like his dad, <laughs> you know, or it's too bad that the wrong Marinus wrote this book. It would have been a lot better if, if David had written it. Um, so that pressure exists. My dad does a good job of trying to um, alleviate that essentially by not getting involved and which really pissed me off with strong inside when I would send home chapters to my parents to read and I would get a uh, package back from my mom with her edits <laughs> and to never hear from my dad. And I'm like, there's a person in your house who's written 12 books and they're not weighing in on this. That's kind of frustrating. Um, and then I realized the method to his madness was that I would feel like I did this on my own without his fingerprints all over it. But, you know, mostly I think about my dad the way um, probably most people do if they have a good relationship with their dad. I mean, it's it's less about his profession or, or mine and more about talking about the Milwaukee Brewers or getting ready for the Packers game and making plans for Thanksgiving. I mean, it's just a it's a it's our family. So um, I don't always think of him as as this, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning author. You alluded to the book you wrote with Perry Wallace. Perry Wallace died in 2017. And I've um, 
I've never written a book where I've gotten really close to a subject, sort of lived with the, you know, lived the life of the subject and absorbed the subject and then had him, had him die. And I was kind of wondering how that impacted you or how you dealt with that emotionally when he, when he passed. Um, it was tough. I was at his bedside in his hospice facility up in uh, Maryland 10 days before he died. And I had never had that experience with my own uh, family, with my own grandparents. So he was the first person that I really sat with as they were dying. And we had developed a really close relationship since I was 19 years old when I first wrote that college paper about him. When I was working on the book, I always tried to maintain some sense of detachment, you know, journalistic detachment from him, even though I really admired him, but didn't want to become too close. You know, you never knew what you'd find out in the research for the book. But after the book came out and I didn't really have to worry about that so much anymore, he became a really close personal friend and visited our house and met my kids. And, you know, I knew all of his sisters and his wife very well. So we were legit friends. And um, when I was preparing to fly up from Nashville to see him in hospice, I thought, you know, what's the role of a biographer at that moment where you're going to be spending some of the last minutes uh, with your subject? And so I thought what I could do that might make him happy, and since I knew his life so well, is I typed out four pages just of uh, all of the things he had done in his life um, from the time he was born until, you know, um, basically he was still receiving awards and things uh, all the way up until he passed away. So I, I just sat there and held his hand and read him those four pages of what a remarkable life he had lived. And I could tell that that meant something to him. And um, we just shared a very special moment there. I was there with David Williams and Candace Lee, who are at the time were the athletic director and the deputy athletic director at Vanderbilt, who are both African-American. And Perry, being the first black basketball player in the SEC at Vanderbilt, really paved the way for David and, and Candace to be in leadership positions at this school. And Perry knew that we were all three sort of hanging on every word this last time that we would um, see him, and not in an egotistical way, but just in a realistic way. He said, if, if you are thinking about me in the future and you want to sort of honor my memory, what you can do is to create opportunities for women, which I thought wow. was remarkable that he was thinking about other people, you know, even in the last days of his life. And, and what I think he meant was he was referring to his mom, who uh, grew up in rural Tennessee in the 1920s and 30s was a brilliant woman, loved to read, but because of racism in the South at the time, her the schools for black kids where she grew up ended after eighth grade. And so she was never able to go to high school or to go to college and had very limited opportunities in life. All of the Wallace kids graduated from college, either at Vandy or TSU or Fisk. And she would read their college textbooks, you know, as a way to further her education. But Perry saw that she was only able to be uh, a cleaning lady that was the only job available to her in Nashville. And he didn't want to see other uh, people, especially women, have opportunities denied. And so I left that last meeting with Perry feeling uh, especially close to him and, and happy that I had been there and had been able to read his achievements, but also sort of left with a charge to continue um, to do what he would have done. And that, that was to create opportunities for other people. People misunderstand the idea of sort of separation of of chronicler from subject i think sometimes people misunderstand like you can you are allowed to develop a close relationship with someone you're writing about and at the same time 
be accurate, fair, honest in your assessments. I mean, mm-hmm. I had Mark, Mark Creo on a few weeks ago. He wrote Boom Boom Mancini's biography, and Boom Boom Mancini was one of his best friends. But he made it clear to Mancini early on, you're, you're going to make no money off of this book, and it's going to make you really uncomfortable, just so we have that <laughs> understanding. Maybe it depends a little bit on having the right subject. I mean, Perry was a, a brilliant person. He became a law professor. He was... Um, you know, he watched the news every night. He was a man of the world, a Renaissance man. He played the trumpet. He sang opera. He spoke French. He was someone that understood books in the way they work and that he didn't have control over what I would write. And so we had that understanding from the very beginning. Now, in a book I'm writing right now, a biography of Glenn Burke, who was the first openly gay Major League Baseball player, played for the Dodgers and the Oakland A's in the late 70s, um, I had emailed Tommy Lasorda's daughter to see if she would do an interview with me. Losorda had been Burke's manager and uh, Losorda's son, Tommy Jr., it's been written about, uh, was gay. And he had a, at least a friendship with Glenn Burke. And so um, Losorda's daughter emailed me back and said that the family would prefer if I did not mention the brother in the book. Um, and of course, you know, she can ask me whatever she wants, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to abide by that. I mean, it's part Wait, of Wait, how did you reply? So what did you say to her? Well, I haven't written back yet. (laughs) (laughs) I hope she doesn't listen here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We'll see. I mean, I'll write her back and I'll say, you know, uh, something polite back. You know, I appreciate her taking the time to write back. But this is, you know, it's it's been written about many times before. It's part of the story and um, hope she'll understand that. The Peter Richmond piece on Tommy Lasorda and his and his son. um, Yes. I don't know if you ever read it is one of the uh, is one of the. I would strongly urge people listening to this podcast to Google Peter Richmond, Tommy Lasorda, because it's a remarkable article about Tommy Lasorda really rejecting his gay son. And yeah, but that's a whole other subject. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and she's excited because I wrote a new poem called Ode to 503 Sports. You're not good at this. Okay, here I go. I carry throwback jerseys with me. I carry them in my heart. I'm never without my throwback Ken Lacey Michigan Panthers gear. Anywhere it goes, I go, my dear. And whatever is done by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, is your doing, my darling. Did you seriously just rip off an E.E. Cummings poem? Mm -hmm. No, I wrote it. Just go to 503-sports.com, I swear. I swear I was adopted. All right, so I'm fascinated. You write a book about the 1936 U.S. men's Olympic basketball team. There's no women's team at that time. And, and the game was obviously in, in Germany and Hitler. Is it hard? Is it weird? Is it ever frustrating writing a book about a subject where everyone is dead? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, <laughs> it was. Um, I did meet one person that, that was that attended the Olympics and he was fascinating. He became a character in the book. Um Al Miller, he was a 13-year-old Jewish kid living in Berlin at the time of the 36 Olympics. I was in Cincinnati doing research at the American Jewish Archives. And when I told the archivist the subject, they said, well, you've got to interview Dr. Miller. And I was like, who's Dr. Miller? And um, they they set up an interview and I came back to Cincinnati. He um, remembered riding his bike to the Olympics. The first African-American person he ever saw in his life was the fastest man in the world, Jesse Owens. And um, he was able to escape. His parents got him out of Berlin the next year. He was not sure if he'd ever see them again. His his father had two unnecessary appendectomies the next year so that he could hide out in the ho- in a hospital and he, he evade the Nazis that were coming to 
get him at his house. His parents ended up making it to um, New York and resettled in Cincinnati. He's now 97 years old and visits schools in Cincinnati and talks about uh, living through that period in the Holocaust. And so he, he appears as a character in the book, but there was really nobody else living I could talk to. I interviewed the sons and daughters of some of the U.S. Olympic basketball players who are now in themselves in their 60s and 70s. Some of them had letters that their dads had written back from Berlin. Others had gold medals, you know, that I was able to hold or other items they brought back from the Olympics. And then there was one woman, Barbara Kahn in Los Angeles, whose father, Sam Balter, was the only Jewish uh, member of that basketball team. And she had written a, a, a book about her dad's experience there and later as a radio broadcaster. And so that was a helpful source. But it was a far different experience than having Perry Wallace sitting right next to me, essentially, for eight years. Um, and it was frustrating not to have those interviews, but I thought it was a, a good exercise for me as someone writing my second book to have a completely different experience and to learn how to write an interesting book based primarily off archival research. I had no knowledge of this. I absorbed the book really quickly. I think it's freaking fascinating and a subject I barely knew existed. I mean, obviously I knew about the Berlin games, but not about the U S basketball team. And, um, you wrote about the, the title game, which the U S I just want to say, this is men's basketball final score. U S 19 Canada six. And, um, <laughs> you wrote, I was just fascinated by that. And you wrote a steady rain became a downpour. One American player had his feet slip out from underneath him as he ran down the court to collect a pass and skidded 20 feet on his behind, sending water squirting in every direction. Even in dry conditions, the Berg basketball had been difficult to handle. Now it was impossible to get a grip on it. Dribbling was pointless. The ball didn't bounce. It just plopped in the mud and stayed there. Holding a pass, Balter said, proved a rarity. Accurate shooting an impossibility. Watching from the sideline, U.S. coach Jimmy Needles heard American fans gasp in disbelief as players on both teams mishandled easy passes and wildly missed shot after shot. It's a fucking great, <laughs> great recounting of a game where you had no witnesses. None of the participants are alive, and the final score is 19 to 8. Um, it's great. Seriously, it's great. Thanks, it is, man. Thank you. It is as interesting as reading about whatever, you know, U.S.-Soviet 1972 game. It's really fascinating. And I wonder, so specifically with that game, how are you researching it, and what are you doing to dig into it? Okay, so that uh, recounting of that game come from, came from a few different sources. There was some newspaper coverage of the game, uh, very little. Basketball was not a big deal at those Olympics. The um, the famous boys in the boat crew competition was happening at the exact same time, exact same day as the basketball gold medal game. And everybody was over watching the rowing, including Hitler. And the international radio broadcast that day was of the rowing. <laughs> Nobody was paying attention to basketball. So even the newspaper coverage was limited. Um, the coach, Jimmy Needles, wrote an article for a sports magazine when he came back from the Olympics talking about the whole experience. And so I got some good detail there. Uh, Sam Balter, I mentioned his daughter wrote a book about him. And so she interviewed him and he told her some stories about that game. Um, and those were the, the main sources for that um, recounting of that game. There was also uh, a player named Willard Schmidt, whose daughter I interviewed. And I think she had a letter that her dad had written a bit about, about that experience too. So it was piecing together uh, different stories I had collected from different spots. I could see the temptation and maybe succumbing to it a little. So you read five articles about it and the rain was pouring and you want to describe what the gravel was like, but you're not quite sure. Like, is it hard 
which says mm. limited amount of material not to take flourishes or stabs. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, it wasn't because that's one thing that's been beaten into me by my father is like, in nonfiction, you, you're not making up anything. You know, you have to have a source for everything. Um, and so I, I hope that I didn't, you know, take any liberties with that. I know like you don't assume what someone might be thinking. You don't assume what something might have looked like or felt like. Uh, you just don't do it. And so I, I hope that I respect that rule. You read a lot of writing from the 1930s, 1940s, I'm sure, to, to research this book. Everyone talks about the glory days of sports writing and, you know, these great columnists and Red Smith and blah, blah, blah. I kind of feel like writing is better now than it, than it was then. And a lot of people, that would be considered blasphemy. I just, whenever I read old writing, I'm like, oh, some of it's kind of corny and kind of campy and Bob Hope-ish. And having delved into that era of sports writing, how drastically has the medium changed as far as stylistically? And do you think there's a better or worse time period? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, you know, I'm someone that the whole reason that I live in Nashville and came to Vanderbilt was on the Grantland Rice sports writing scholarship. Right. And he kind of embodies exactly what you're talking about, considered sort of the the name from that old school sports writing era. And if you read his stuff, I mean, it's incredibly corny. Um, but I guess it was a humdinger of an afternoon. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and the, the sort of the doggerel, the poetry that he would write in. Um, but I mean, this was before TV, this was before ESPN, before SportsCenter, before social media. These guys were huge, you know, and they were syndicated and they were writing columns every single day that were really long. And they were at all of the big events that were taking place around the country. And this was really for the first time. So I think that it's fair to say it was a golden age of sports writing because it was kind of the, the dawn of it. And they were creating legends and their impact on the country and what people were talking about and what they even most people never saw these people uh, unless they happened to attend a game in person. So they were building these, these images. So I think it's fair to give them their, their due um, in terms of their influence that they had nationally there. I, I would agree that, um, that writing is better now and people. And I think the way that you respect good writing also is that it can be critical, <laughs> you know, and it's telling the truth. Um, and I don't think that there was a whole lot of that happening back then. I mean, there was a more chummy relationship. These guys are riding the same, same trains and the sports writers are probably making more money than most of the athletes they were covering. So it was a completely different relationship back then. I would say that, um, the good writing now, and this is what I would hope to do in my books is not just sticking to sports, you know, and, um, admitting that sports and politics have always been intertwined. They don't keep them separate. They've never been separate, you know, and I think that's a lot of where the interesting uh, sports writing is coming from these days. And even the interesting athletes are the ones that are, have opinions and uh, aren't afraid to share them outside of their sport. And I think we do see uh, more of that now than certainly we did back then. I just think if you took my LeBron James and put him on the 1936 U.S. Olympic basketball team. <laughs> He's averaging 7,000 points a game. Yeah. I feel like if you took Wright, Wright Thompson or yeah. Gary Smith or Rick Riley or any of these guys, or Sally Jenkins, and threw him back in time to 1936 and had them write some columns, people would be like, whoa, what the yeah. heck is this? I, I agree. But it also makes you wonder, so what are we progressing to 50 years from now? And are we going to look back at these athletes and these writers as not being very good? You know, So you can't really compare eras, I guess. But um, 
I agree. In terms of like that basketball analogy, the tallest players on the team were like six seven, six eight. Joe Fortenberry, he was considered the first player ever to dunk the basketball. And that may or may not have been true, but he was the first player ever to dunk at Madison Square Garden. And you know how the New York media is. If it's the first time it's been done there, then clearly it's the first time it's been done anywhere, right? So Arthur Daly for the New York Times wrote about how this unusual shot this guy had was akin to a diner customer dunking their roll in some coffee. And, that, and that's where that terminology came from. Wow. If we took Joe Fortenberry, six foot eight center from Chesterfield, Missouri, and we threw, we, you know, zapped him through time, gave him a week to acclimate himself and realize, you know, different <laughs> things. Would he make the team at Vanderbilt? Oh, um, probably. I mean, he, he was six, eight. He was really strong. He could obviously jump and dunk. Um, I have a fun story. His son told me uh, he, uh, his dad was actually from Texas. And he told this uh, story that he was a legendary bare knuckle boxer back then. And all these little towns in West Texas had their, their top boxer back when they were teenagers. And one night Joe Fortenberry showed up in this dusty um, ravine with everyone pulled their old 1930s cars in a circle to shine their headlights to make a little boxing ring. And the guy showed up from the other town and um, sucker punched Fortenberry while he was still sitting in his car. Fortenberry didn't even get out of his car, punched the guy with his left hand and knocked him out and drove away without saying a word. So he would have been at least a bruiser, a guy you bring in to foul people, you know, at the end of the game, if nothing else. I'm really fascinated when I'm writing books. Like, I'm a fan of the building of something. Like, I, when I wrote about the 86 Mets, my favorite part of that is writing about the construction of the 86 Mets. This was not what people are used to nowadays, where we ask the, whatever, 12 best players in the NBA to come play. You seem particularly fascinated by the construction of this team. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. So, like you said, they didn't invite individuals to try out. Um, they held a qualifying tournament, and the idea was that whichever two teams advanced to the finals of this tournament would be combined to become the U.S. Olympic basketball team. And so this tournament was open to amateur teams, uh, white amateur teams, I should point out, um, from across the country. And the best teams came from YMCAs, from colleges, and from AAU teams. And AAU was far different back then. It wasn't high school phenoms, it was um, college graduates and there was no NBA. So they would get jobs working at companies that had company basketball teams really just to serve as sort of marketing for their companies. And so um, one interesting aspect of that is that the best college team in the country was Long Island University, coached by Claire B. Um, they had won something like 36 straight games heading into the tournament. And they had uh, five or six Jewish players on their team and uh, Claire B sat the entire team down and said, if there's any single member of this team that, uh, you know, refuses to go to uh, Nazi Germany to play in the Olympics, we will honor that and we'll boycott the qualifying tournament. And I think seven oh. hands went up to boycott. And so you had the best team in the country choose to boycott even the uh, U.S. Olympic qualifying tournament. The two teams that did make it to the finals and became the U.S. first U.S. Olympic basketball team were the Globe Refiners, uh, an oil refinery in McPherson, Kansas, um, coached by a guy named Gene Johnson, who was ahead of his time and was considered uh, like kind of almost a fool by the establishment of basketball at the time because his team didn't walk the ball up carefully down the court. They ran a fast break and they didn't wait for the other team to come back down the other floor. They did a full court press. And these were things that weren't really done at the time, but he was 
the visionary in basketball. The other team was called the Universals, and they represented Universal Pictures in Hollywood, um, a studio that was founded by Carl Lemley, who was a German Jew, which was ironic considering where their team was headed. And then um, the manager of their team, not the coach, but the guy that sort of built the team was named Jack Pierce, who was the head makeup artist at Universal. And he created the iconic look for Frankenstein and for uh, the um, Hunchback of Notre Dame. And he loved basketball. And he would dress up some of his players, who were these six 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 eight giants of the time, in the costumes from these movies. And so you had a guy named Frank Lubin, who was a UCLA graduate, a center, that that uh, Jack Pierce would dress up as Frankenstein before every game in the green makeup and everything. And he would entertain the crowd, you know, sort of promote the movies of Universal. And then as the game started, he'd go back to the locker room, change out of his Frankenstein suit wipe off as much of the green paint as he could and then come out and play the second half of the, of the basketball game. So I thought that was just um, a really interesting backstory of how this, how this team was created. And then uh, I'll point out, you know, my book is really marketed as a young adult book for middle school, high school kids, but I try to write it in a way that will appeal just as much to adults as kids. But one thing I wanted to make sure to point out to kids is that the fact that there were no African-American players on this team wasn't because there weren't any black players good enough to make the team was because they weren't allowed to try out for the team. And so I include a picture of a Howard university team of that era to put that image in the kid's face. You know, yes, there were great basketball players at that time. And I talk about the, some of the parallels between the racism in Germany and the racism in the U S at that time. Are we allowed to look back at the people who participated, the people who were gung ho about going, the people who were like, look, Hitler isn't so bad or, you know, you talk about Avery Brundage, who is the, uh, the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, who, who just sounded like an awful, awful human being who actually sort of sided with Hitler, you know, in his in his politics and his social sort of viewpoints. Is it OK to look back at these people, even the guys who played and sort of say, why the hell would you go to Nazi Germany and play basketball when all this was going on? I think it's almost case by case. I think we're proper to be critical of Brundage. He was definitely an anti-Semite. I looked through his uh, archives at University of Illinois and saw the, just the volume of magazines and newsletters that he subscribed to that were completely far out, wacky, anti-Semitic screeds um, that he believed in. He would receive letters from people signed Heil, Hitler, Heil Brundage, and he would write complimentary letters back to these people. He was um, working hand in hand with Nazis in Germany to influence public opinion in the United States to prevent a U.S. boycott of the Olympics. So uh, we're proper to criticize him. On the other hand, the athletes, I think, um, in many cases, deserve a different um, sort of accounting. You know, you even had African-American athletes like Jesse Owens, who was getting pressure um, from um, black leaders in the NAACP at the time, telling him not to go, that racism anywhere um, was a threat to people everywhere. Sam Balter, the Jewish basketball player on the American team, asked for opinions from Jewish leaders around the country as he was considering whether to go or not. And in both cases, uh, Jesse Owens and, and Sam Balter decided the best thing they could do, they thought at that time, was to go to Berlin, perform well, win a gold medal and refute Hitler in that way. And I, I think that it's it's too easy with hindsight to see that you know, what they did was obviously ineffective in, in having any impact on Hitler. But at the time, uh, I think it's hard to fault them as athletes who saw their opportunity to go to the Olympics. And I, I'm not hard on them in the book. 
Is it just a preposterous decision that we went to Nazi Germany to compete in the Olympics? Yes. <laughs> and I mean, that was a question I tried to uh, approach with a completely open mind as I was doing the research. But what really pissed me off was just to see um, that it wasn't even a fair fight, that you did have Brundage in such a position of, of power and authority who, uh, you know, said that he was going on a fact-finding mission to Berlin. And when he got there, his host was a Nazi. And everywhere he went, he was accompanied by Nazis in uniform. Even when he was interviewing Jewish athletes, there'd be a, a, a Nazi in the back of the room. So, of course, he wasn't hearing the truth. And he wasn't even looking for the truth. He, he assured the Nazi host that his own club, his private athletic club in Chicago, didn't let Jews in either, you know, so that he wouldn't even appear to be uh, offensive to his Nazi host. He was asking the Nazis to send uh, positive information uh, quote unquote, to newspapers in the U.S. to influence uh, public opinion here, and so there were there was a Gallup poll leading up to the Olympics that showed forty three percent, I believe, of the American public, even two years before the Olympics, thought we should boycott, which is really sizable amount considering we'd never boycotted an Olympics before. And how much did the average person in the U.S. at that time know really about what was happening in Germany? And so when you think about the sort of the misinformation campaign that was going on at the time. That's what really um, sort of just upset me as an observer all these years later. Yeah. It's interesting to write a book and be angry as you write a book. And I've had that. I had that happen a lot when I wrote about the USFL and the decline of the USFL, my wife would be like, why are you in a bad mood? I'm like, cause I can't <laughs> fucking stand this. You know, like I imagine <laughs> no you must've had your moments, your moments of frustration. And just the bigger picture you kind of allude to there of the, the neurotic writer or the emotional toll that, comes with writing and you know you're almost always thinking about it even if you're supposedly having dinner with your family or <laughs> doing something else um it's always in the back of your mind uh, whether it's the research you've just uncovered or something that it's driving you crazy you haven't gotten to yet or how you're gonna tell the next anecdote in the book um and i guess kind of like i said at the beginning about trying to be better about spending time with my family throughout this process i'm trying to be better this time through of um, of compartmentalizing things as much as I can so that I'm present for the rest of my life, even as I'm, you know, diving down these rabbit holes or getting frustrated or happy even with what I'm discovering in the research. He Rose wrote the book, My Prison Without Bars. And I feel like writing is a prison without bars where it's, you just get so absorbed in it and it's a great job, but it is, yeah. it can beat the, it can beat the snot out of you. You have to be obsessed with it. If you're going to, I think, create a good product, you know, you can't have ask your way through it. Um, but it does potentially have an impact on the rest of your life that, uh, that that's something I hope I've learned, uh, through the process of now onto my third book. Let me ask you a final question in your past life. You were the, you were the, uh, media relations manager for the Tampa Bay, then devil Rays. Yes. Um, which is interesting because in hindsight, it seems like an, an odd fit because you really are sort of a journalist and you're a writer and a chronicler and there you're in charge of, you know, in putting forth the right message for a, uh, for a baseball team. Um, I'm kind of fascinated. Like what did you learn from that experience journalistically? It was a really interesting year for me. I love baseball. I always have my entire life. When I was in college, I applied for jobs with every major league team and got rejected by every major league team. And, uh, save the rejection letters because I thought it was cool to have the letterhead from these teams and their logos on it. Um, the Rays came around, obviously an expansion team. They were hiring a brand new staff. 
Rick Vaughn was my boss. You probably met Rick over the years. Yeah, of course. Uh, he, he, he had worked for the Orioles and the Redskins and, and he was great. Um, I think I learned a lot about, and consider I had done basically the same thing for the Vanderbilt athletic department before that with some really terrible football teams um, and some mediocre to good basketball teams. But I think I learned a lot about uh, attention to detail and professionalism um, uh, showing up every day over the course of a long baseball season. Um, journalistically, it was a interesting insight. Um, even though you're sort of, like you said, you're, you're kind of the PR, you are the PR element of a team and you're not putting forth any negative uh, stories, but you are in the clubhouse every day. So you're seeing interesting things happen. You're seeing how the players and the manager interact. Um, and so I think it was maybe that insider access to a season. I've always loved John Feinstein's books about, you know, a season with a team uh, or following a, a tour throughout the course of a year. And so for me, it was kind of having that, um, that sort of experience with the team that year. And I remember seeing you actually in Oakland, uh, the team came to play the A's and you were out on the field interviewing maybe Quentin McCracken, uh, I think before a game. And we shared that we both had come from Nashville. Uh, yep. and, um, my going away present from Larry Rothschild, who was the manager that year, he knew I was coming back to Nashville after that season. He let me take batting practice at Yankee stadium before a game on the last road trip of the year which was awesome. And uh, big Frank Howard was pitching BP that day. Wade Boggs was leaning up against the cage while I was hitting with uh, Mike DeFelice's bat. The first time I'd ever swung a wooden bat and I've got no power, but I didn't swing and miss at any. So I was happy about that. And I thought that was cool. And then he let me um, walk across the field with the pitching coach, Rick Williams to the Yankee stadium bullpen with the starting pitcher. who I can't remember who that was, but before the game uh, to warm up and, just having that experience of walking across Yankee Stadium field with all the Yankee fans just heckling the hell out of the pitcher. And I, I closed my eyes and soaked up all the FUs and <laughs> everything and pretended it was me. And it was one of the best feelings <laughs> of my life to feel heckled by a, a Yankee Stadium crowd. I'll never forget that. Do you get asked a lot in your in your day to day life? What was it like to see Miguel Cairo play second base every day? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's tiring uh, talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> the legendary Cairo to Stalker to McGriff. It's like Tinkers to Evers to Chance. You know? That is Dave Martinez was your right fielder. Quentin McCracken, Bubba Trammell. Andy Wynn. <laughs> Rolando Orojo. Man, you know your 98 Rays, Jeff. <laughs> I um, For some reason, when I was at SI, the Rays were not the hottest team to write about. So Verduzzi would get whatever, the Yankees and whoever. And I would find myself in that god-awful stadium. Which was once accurately compared to a tuna fish can. Watching, <laughs> watching Miguel Cairo and Bobby Smith get batting practice. Bobby Smith, third baseman, came from the Braves. He was supposed to be the next being on Mike Kelly. Uh, oh Wilson Alvarez. I love that team. Yeah, yeah, man, that was a fun team. Some nice guys on that team, too, I'll say. Well, listen, you have signings to do and, and kids to watch and, you know, I wish you much luck with this. Seriously, I think it's such a worthwhile project. Uh, I think it's really cool you did it, and it's an excellent read. And again, we've uh, we've we have both. They can say whatever they want about us. They can take away everything. They can slam our books. <laughs> we have both seen Dave Silvestri in a Tampa Bay Rays <laughs> uniform, and they will never, they never steal take, that from us. No, they'll never take that away. 
I want to thank today's guest, Andrew Marinus, for joining me on True Writer Singing Yang. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at TrueBlue, T-R-U-B-L-U-24, and visit his site, andrewmarinus.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Sing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Anchor, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.